We spent a good deal of your seventh birthday apart. It was the longest we've been apart on your birthday since the post-delivery ward at the hospital. It left me a bit directionless. I wandered and waited and found too much room for recollection. The day you were born, they tell me you twisted yourself free, your broad shoulders staring a bright red path toward the harsh fluorescent hospital light. They tell me you shook yourself like a swimmer emerging from a pool and lifted your chin as if toward a leaderboard. My mother says that my first words after they handed you to me were, "Ah, I love her. It was you, an impossibly thoughtful gift unwrapped before an expectant audience. And I, the unwitting recipient, oblivious to the limits of language, steeped in barely coherent bliss. I don't remember declaring my love for you aloud. I don't remember saying anything. Blame the residual haze of the epidural, the immediate thigh-quaking aftershock of expelling human life, the bustle of nurses, residents, and family. I only recall how time grew hazy. It crawled and dashed according to whether your weight anchored my arms or your absence rendered them feathery and futile. You were born in the evening at 7.47 p.m. Other people held you for the hour thereafter while a doctor talked the half-dozen students peering at the hazard zone between my legs through the sutures they attempted, unraveled, and attempted again. When I got you back, you were so serene, so beatific, that I thought I would keep you in the room with me and your grandmother all night. I did not want us to spend what was left of our first face-to-face -face day apart, but the attending nurse recommended otherwise. She admonished me to rest then, since opportunities to do so would be so scant when we were discharged. My mother conceded that the nurse was right, and you were whisked away to the nursery, your ankle fitted with what the staff jokingly referred to as a baby lojack, an electronic ID bracelet programmed to blare if anyone other than a nurse tried to take you. As is often the case in hospitals, the night proved fitful and sleep elusive. What I remember best was the young, bespectacled black resident who stealthily materialized at my bedside in the third watch of night. Sheepish, his expression still vaguely nauseous from having seen earlier up close the parts of me that were torn and bloodied. He whispered that he was there to check the wounds. Good luck, I would tell him if I could go back to that moment now. I am still identifying the wounds, still struggling to name them. We were both embarrassed as he rushed through his check, the light in the room likely too dim for him to see what he needed to. He disappeared as quietly as he'd entered. And the next time I found myself fully awake, you were with me in the hospital bed again. It has taken me years to grow accustomed to how healthy absences like that first one on the night of your birth are supposed to feel. We spent an almost oppressive amount of time together until you were three or four. And by then, whenever you were away for your two hours of school or an afternoon with other family, that felt almost oppressive too. I'd forgotten how to be myself without you. And that is an amnesia that recurs to this day. This is often a significant part of unpartnered parenting, figuring out how to survive too much togetherness and discovering or rediscovering who you are when you and your children are apart. Neither is easy. Your birthday for all its joy tends to remind me a bit of the muted sorrow I felt the day you were born. 
I am not sure if this is true of many single mothers of firstborn children. But for me, even though I was supported, surrounded in truth, by an aunt and uncle, both my parents and my stepmother, who were milling around the waiting and delivery rooms, I still felt a small but rising panic. All this would pass. Soon we'd be home, and the responsibility of keeping you alive would ultimately be mine alone. As soon as she realized that the next post-crowning mid-contraction push would be my last, my mother dialed her dad. He'd missed most of my labor, missed the hospital commute, and missed my mortified, vomiting jag in the intake room, missed the rivulets of water and blood, the bulbous, bluish placenta, the misstitched sutures. But my mother made sure he was there for the best part, your first cry. Once he'd heard you, she held the phone close to the delicate filigree of your ear so he could greet you for the first time. I suppose she handed me the phone as well. It is yet another detail I do not recall. Even now I wonder, is it better that he wasn't there? Better for the breaking open of my body not to be witnessed by someone who had not lawfully claimed it. Better to have had those earliest moments with you alone. Or would being there have made him reconsider living cross-country for three more years? Would it have made me reconsider the length of time it would take me to forgive him? Absence howls and absence aches. It casts the longest shadow. Absences you aren't expecting may be the most jarring, but even the ones you brace for can be brutal. And those whose effect you hide behind a cloak of single woman bravado still splinter your heart for years thereafter long after the absent one returns. I went overboard for your birthday this year, and there are several reasons why. In the past, I've held fast to a three-gift rule. You are an only child, and you are inundated with toys and books and clothing year-round. I've somehow conditioned myself to buy for you as often as I buy for myself. Trinkets, ephemera, and cat and jack clothing for most every trip I make to Target. You are near constantly receiving. Material gains at holiday time then must be tempered. I buy two small gifts and one more extravagant one, knowing that you'll receive far more when everyone else chips in. This year, that changed. Perhaps it was because you were turning seven and one month shy of starting a new school in a new neighborhood where you'd need all the happiness you could gather in store for whatever challenges might await you there. Perhaps it was because you would be spending most of your birthday at day camp, which meant we would not see each other till late afternoon, and I unwittingly decided to fill the vacuum of your absence with toys. Maybe it was because for the first time in your life, your father and I were planning our celebration separately and I wanted my cozy, close-to-home fate to hold prime real estate in your memory. I wanted a prominent plot right alongside his, which would have the advantage of containing the whole of Hershey Park and a sparkly, effervescent girlfriend you truly adore. The gifts were these. Powerpuff Girl miniatures from a clearance rack at Target. The brown-skinned baby alive with the ice cream cone and scoop you asked for. 40 cupcakes for you and your fellow campers and 40 party favor bags for them all to take home. A three-foot-high wooden dollhouse with a brown-skinned wooden family to dwell therein. A custom music box with a little black ballerina inside. 
my undivided attention. You are easy to spoil because you are easy to please. You do not whine for toys, do not beg for anything. You've never had to. This may be why you are so generous on other people's birthdays. You celebrate us all with the gusto of someone who's never known frugality. You dance around from dawn till dusk on our birthdays, an incandescent dervish whirling with joy on your family's behalf. I do not need to limit your gifts. There are other more meaningful ways to teach you material temperance. You are not intemperate now. There's no need for such overcorrection. I am trying to be generous with you, but it is tough. A balance must be struck between protecting you from people I consider suspicious and granting the joy of your company to those I do not. As you grow older, your circle of influence is already expanding. The speed of that expansion constantly outpaces my readiness, and I cannot adequately express to you how vulnerable that makes me feel. I cannot express it both because the right words would escape me if I tried, and because it would burden you to know. The events of the past year have been new for us. I am used to having you to myself, used to relishing the majority of parenting control, and also quietly resenting all the reasons that control has defaulted to me. There are benefits to taking on the bulk of parenting responsibility. A single parent becomes the sole architect of her family's world. She does not have to field a partner's suggestions or demands. She never has to capitulate to them in the interest of compromise. And it is comfortable somehow to construct a family dynamic that is not bogged down by anyone else's choices. Even when it's lonely, it's still wonderful to feel so weightless. In the years since your last birthday, I've had to cede some of that comfort. I am waving you off at the door with more regularity now. It happens about one day per weekend. You are being picked up much closer to the agreed upon time, and I am far less frequently invited to come along. You wanna talk about daddy? Okay. What do you guys do together? Um, playing the toys, saying I love you, taking a big hug, have lots of fun, 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 fun. Yeah. <laughs> All you can learn about... When your father picks you up for the day now, you, you two are seldom leaving alone. When you are a full-grown woman, you find your expectations of some men to be at odds with their actual behavior. If you have a child with one and decide to parent with him either before marriage or after the dissolution of one, the terms of your relationship to him will be set on a sliding scale. You will call yourselves friends, you will have to. But this word is an insufficient one. You are not likely to have another friend in this world whose child you've just dated and delivered into it. You will call yourself friends, you will have to. But when any other friendship outlives its emotional usefulness, you can extricate yourself from it quite easily. You can retreat into anonymity and strike up new and healthier friendships when it suits you. Not so with the father of your child. What you build with a co-parent is a bridge beyond friendship, and the water under that bridge is at turns choppy and murky, so salty sometimes as to seem untenable. The water quality changes and so does the stability of the bridge. When both are at their most precarious, 
when you are out on that bridge uncertain that it will hold the water beneath you at its worst. It will never be any clearer than it is in those moments. You did not come here to make friends. I learned this too late. I am still learning it. There are guardrails you must raise in co-parenting. Rails meant to be locked and never lowered. You must say, we go together up to here. To the doctor's appointments, to the parent-teacher conferences, to the graduations and celebrations. But only if they can be navigated with our guardrails kept firmly intact. Beyond this, we part ways. Beyond this, we figure out how to be single parents by being single people. I may have always raised the guardrails with your father, but I did not often keep them locked. Sometimes the three of us had family outings for no occasion at all, trips to malls and restaurants mostly, occurring frequently enough that we could be confused, even amongst ourselves, for a nuclear family. Frequently enough that I'd convince myself that we'd become friends again. And even worse, that we were friends who might be able to root around the deadened nerves of love and find some way to reanimate even that again. He did not tell me during any of those outings that he and the woman he'd been seeing for a year or more were taking you to movies and theater shows and restaurants together, venues from which he often sent pictures, omitting her presence from the frame or from mention. In fact, I did not find out about her until you told me. You like her. By now, you may even love her. You've had time to develop a fairly strong bond. In those early days, though, I believe you mentioned her to me because you guessed that no one else had. If I'd known, I would have mentioned her to you. You sensed you knew something big about a change in your life that I did not, and you decided to exercise a maturity about it that none of the adults around you had as yet. You, at age six, brought into the open the truth of your expanding family. You, at age six, shouldn't have had to. It is all precarious, raising a child with someone you either love or hate, someone you're happy to see from time to time and also on other occasions can barely stand to look at. And as much as I am able, I bear it because you deserve the effort. You were born into a circumstance that required an even exchange between your stubborn parents of contrition and forgiveness. It is only natural that such transactions will also be required through the rest of your childhood. There's a kind of humiliation in having to ask multiple times to meet the woman who's been spending time with your daughter for months and who began doing so without your knowledge. But humiliation is also a facet of co-parenting. No matter how you try to stave it off, it finds a way to sidle up. I met her once and more months passed before long came your seventh birthday. It was clear that this would simply be the first of many when you would have two separate celebrations because mine fell on the actual date of your birth. Your father was in attendance. Days later, he and his girlfriend took you to Hershey Park. I was vocally supportive of this, though it would not have mattered one bit if I were not, and I suppose it shouldn't have. I had every confidence that you were having the time of your life, every confidence that you all were, and in your absence, I was valiant in my attempt to focus solely on that. It is all that actually mattered. I drove to the big outlet mall 20 miles south, found a table for one at a brewery restaurant, and sipped an hibiscus IPA. The situation felt uniquely awkward until the hops kicked in. 
For the following hour or so, I allowed myself tipsy forgetfulness. There are gifts that a mother deserves too, especially on the anniversary of the day she gave birth, which is in some ways as separate and private a commemoration as the birthday celebrations for her child that are planned and executed without her. A mother must grant herself insulation from shame. She must treat herself to the gentleness so many others deny her. She should find a space where the I told you so's and you should have knowns are inaudible. A space where she can admit to herself, if not the world, that she has not yet fully recovered. A cavernous space where she can quietly confess her jealousies. When you returned from Hershey Park late at night, you were asleep on your father's shoulder. He declared it a really great day as he laid you across the love seat in my living room. I smiled and said, I'm glad. It was not easy, but I meant it. Story. Yeah. Is it easy or is it hard to make friends? Um, easy. How do you make friends? You say, hi, what's your name? And then what do they say? My name is Matthew. And then what happens? What happens next? I say, my name is Dory, when we be friends. Yeah. And then you guys are usually friends? Yeah. For how long? How long do you stay friends? 35 years. <laughs>